the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then dig in and study it together. together. We're almost to the end of Genesis. (laughs) Very exciting. Pat yourself on the back. You're almost to the end. But here's why we study this story and all the stories in the Bible that are the history. It's so that we can learn from these people who were people of God, but still made mistakes. And so here's where we are. Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers. There was that flood of emotion, the tears, the crying, and and the difficult moments for him as he uh, revealed who he was. The brothers, they're shocked, obviously, a little afraid. Joseph then assured them this was God's doing. Everything's okay. What you meant for evil, he meant for good. And then he sent ahead of them um, to save them from the famine, really. And then Jacob and their whole family packed their bags and moved to Egypt where his son was in charge. Jacob finally gets to see his long lost son, but he stops at Beersheba and he had a vision of God's confirmation that this is the plan for them to go to Egypt and leave Canaan the promised land. And so there's this great story of God's sovereignty in both Joseph and Jacob's faithfulness to him in their lives. Great, great overview there. All right, to set up chapters 47 and 48, I want to ask you a few questions first. Do you feel like you have a plan for your life or do you feel like you are floating down a river to nowhere? Make this episode your inspiration, a target, something to shoot for because Joseph and Jacob are leaders we can learn from. Joseph, the first one I'm going to cover and I'm going to be covering both back and forth. So stay with me on this because they're such unique men. Joseph is this example of a man who worked hard, stayed hopeful, and finished right where God planned to save this nation. Joseph was brilliant, but he wasn't born brilliant. None of us. Joseph suffered from the sins of others. Joseph turned his trials into triumphs. And then we have this other example of Jacob, who worked hard, stayed faithful. They both worked hard. Joseph was hopeful. Jacob was faithful. And he finished right where God planned, again, to launch this nation. So one saved the nation, the other launched the nation. Jacob was steadfast, but he wasn't born steadfast. None of us are. Jacob struggled with his own sin, and Jacob turned trials into triumph. They are father and son, but their life experience was so vastly different as are ours. What they shared was a belief that God had a plan for them. And in very, very different ways, they both pursued that plan. You know, Susan, I think that Joseph was probably as successful as he was, though, because he was standing on the shoulders of his faithful father. And he was hopeful, Joseph was, but still faithful. So he learned that. That from his dad and then built on it. Of course, of course. I don't know where he learned the hard knocks life lesson because Jacob didn't have that. Jacob Jacob struggled with himself where Joseph struggled with other people's sin. Yeah, Jacob, Jacob had studied. a helicopter mom who basically, you yeah. know, helped <laughs> him become the, the man that he was. And <laughs> he he learned to rely didn't. on himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So the question is, what is God's plan for you? Use this episode as inspiration to pursue it, no matter how messy your life journey seems, because both of them had messy life journeys. You will struggle and even suffer, but you can overcome it if you remain hopeful and faithful like Joseph and Jacob. And whatever you're going through can eventually become your testimony and a ministry for you. Exactly. I studied for many years under a pastor, Bruce Moore, and he used to always say, your greatest pain is your greatest ministry. Yeah. yeah. And so whatever that thing is, maybe you're meant to, once you come out on the other side, hold other people's hand and walk them through it because you can be the example that, hey, you can get through this. Exactly. And Joseph's going to be an example of that right now. We're going to look at this because his his struggle, his suffering in prison and as a slave led to his success in the palace. So I want to point out that Joseph was a strategically brilliant leader. And this kind of made me kind of curious because what makes a brilliant leader? I want to know for my own journey. <laughs> I <laughs> manage a bunch that. of people. I manage, you know, four different departments. What, how can I be more brilliant, <laughs> you know, or at least approach brilliant <laughs> because it's important. Um, and I did found this really great article in a Harvard Biz- Business Review titled Strategic Leadership, The Essential Skills. And we'll put it in the show notes, but I want to point out because as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything Joseph did. Mm-hmm. He did not need Harvard to teach him this. He learned in the hard knocks of life. Or maybe Harvard learned from him. Exactly. So this, the author or who they quote in the article um, is this British banker and financier, Nathan Rothschild. And it says that he noted that there, that the more unpredictable the environment, the greater the opportunity if you have the leadership skills to capitalize on it. Well, nobody had a more unpredictable environment than Joseph. And then they go on to identify six skills that when mastered and used in concert, allow leaders to think strategically and navigate the unknown effectively. And they are the abilities to, one, anticipate, two, challenge, three, interpret, four, decide, five, align, and six, learn. Joseph did all of those. I'm going to focus on three. They went on to say a strategic leader is both resolute and flexible. I thought that was kind of two hard things to be at the same time, but they are also persistent in the face of setbacks. That was totally Joseph, but also able to react strategically to environmental shifts. And they've learned to apply all six of these at once. Joseph was that brilliant strategic leader. He was resolute about God's plan for him, but stayed flexible in the face of setbacks. Remember, he had those dreams as a boy that he would see, you know, his brothers bowing down to him, that he would see all this. And he stayed resolute that that was going to happen. That was God's vision to him. But he stayed flexible, even though the setbacks were so severe that how could you even dream that you would be people would bow down to you when you were a slave and in prison in prison Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right we're going to start with chapter 47 joseph went and told pharaoh my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of canaan and are now in goshen he chose five of his brothers and presented them before pharaoh pharaoh asked the brothers what is your occupation your servants are shepherds they replied to pharaoh just as our fathers were they also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now let your servants settle in Goshen. 
Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Well, isn't that just, you know, ironically sweet the way that all worked out? No, that had everything to do with Joseph's strategic brilliance for Israel. Didn't they also kind of look down on shepherds? No, they exactly did. Very high. It was considered dirty, right? Like they were dirty. But this is Joseph strategically setting the situation up to provide for the needs of his people while establishing the protection and isolation of them as a nation. So note, Joseph first, remember we talked about those six criteria that create a brilliant leader and the three I'm going to focus are on that they anticipate, they decide, and they align. And remember back in last chapter, Joseph anticipated where he wanted them to live and how he was going to get them that land. He prepped his brothers prior to them meeting Pharaoh and said, now when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood, just as our fathers did. And he said, then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Now, first, I want you to know, Joseph picked Goshen. It is strategically located um, in this fertile crescent close to the, you know, on the Nile that was not being affected by the drought Mm -hmm. and the famine. So he picked Goshen. It was far enough away that they, and that's why, you know, again, nobody else was, the Egyptians weren't living there. It it was far enough away that they wouldn't be considered like contaminated, the Egyptians by the Israelites. So Joseph has hand-selected this place. He's, He's anticipated that he needs to prep his brothers to clearly say, hey, we're shepherds. Do you think that he also wanted to keep them separate from the Egyptians so that they wouldn't, they weren't really supposed to marry into other cultures and so that was also for their own protection but then wasn't it also because there was good pastures for their livestock right right right. he's chosen this land because it's removed and it's fertile and he's also brilliant because he probably as the second in command under pharaoh knew that pharaoh had his own livestock so he knew how to sway him for what's in it for him he knows he's a man that's worried about what's in it for him well and pharaoh knows everything i give joseph to take care of it prospers it prospers so hey our people don't want to take care of the livestock. Give it to your people if they're so good at it. You know, let them work for me too. Uh, he anticipated that Pharaoh would go along with this, that this plan would work for Pharaoh. So he's got this gift of anticipating. Then Joseph decides. He decides to send his family directly to the city he wants them in, Goshen. Oh, by the way, Pharaoh, they happen to be living in Goshen right now. Why don't you just let them have that? So he doesn't say, I will send them. Hey, if Goshen's okay with you, Pharaoh, I'll send him there. No, he sends them to Goshen and then says, oh yeah, they're in Goshen right now. Oh, good. Let them stay there. So he makes the decision ahead of Pharaoh, but presents it to Pharaoh like it's his idea. That's a really good point because oh, he's I, I'm in a very corporate culture mm-hmm. and you oftentimes have to go, no matter where you are in, in, in the hierarchy of a company, there's always somebody that you have to get permission from. Yeah. And having that, instead of going and asking for permission, um, having that plan already first and then saying, here's how well it's working. Right. Wouldn't this just be a, that's right. a really, really right. good principle. I'm going to use that. 
Um, Joseph never tells Pharaoh that Goshen is where he wants him to go. Pharaoh just decides, okay, great. Then the last thing he really does is Joseph aligns. Joseph simply states that this is where they are and lets Pharaoh make it his own suggestion. The suggestion that Israel settle in fertile Goshen is Pharaoh's decision. Um, and I already kind of got into why Goshen, but it was the perfect place for them. And 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 Joseph decided that. So again, this there's nothing new under the sun. What Joseph Joseph knew was great strategic brilliance. Harvard has now many years <laughs> later. <laughs> I think we just Validated. confirmed that Harvard learned from Joseph. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so care, continuing. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? It's a very rude thing to ask. And Jacob (laughs) said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of pilgrimage of my father's. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Okay, this is just all a side note on this little section. So I'm digressing here, but I wanted to explain just some words in here. The words, um, Jacob's attitude is not one of complaint in this. It sounds like he's complaining, like my years have been, you know, few and difficult. He's, it's really a form of Eastern modesty. And then also it said, you know, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and twice. And that doesn't mean he like blessed him like he would his sons. It just means it's kind of a greeting or a farewell in these two cases. And then also he mentions a pilgrimage. And I want to talk about that because it is a theme throughout the Old Testament. A pilgrimage is a religious journey, and a pilgrim is a traveler or foreigner who journeys for religious reasons. Therefore, it's going to become this theme, especially as we move into Exodus, but all throughout. And I want to talk about a couple verses that in the New Testament talk about this. So when you do hear them in church or whatever, you'll understand them. Hebrews 11, 13, you know, I love 11, Hebrews 11, I'll talk about it a lot, speaks of the patriarch's pilgrimage. All the patriarchs were foreigners on a spiritual journey. Remember, Abraham was called out to go to a place he did not know. And it says in 13, verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them, referring to the patriarchs, and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. This is what Jacob is expressing to Pharaoh. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, that paradise we left behind in the garden. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Well, actually, that was that was the New Testament, Hebrews 11, referring to the Old Testament. But now, New Testament, speaking of our pilgrimage in Philippians 3.20, it says, but our citizens citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be made like his glorious body we are also on a spiritual pilgrimage we are foreigners traveling waiting for that better place so the old testament our patriarchs are examples to us of that heart we need to have as we journey through this life knowing that we don't live for today. We don't live for this world. We live for God and his future hope and eternity. Was Canaan where they left? That was the promised land, right? Correct. 
They left it to go to Egypt. Correct. That's why I remember he stops at Beersheba because he knows, okay, this is where we're supposed to be. Egypt has been a bad place. Are you sure you want me to go? Yeah. Okay. Continue on. Sorry for that aside. I wanted to explain it. It was a little confusing. Verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. Right. Just pause there a second and get inside the the head of Jacob. Can you imagine his wonder at that moment to stand beside his son, a boy he last remembered dressed in the best their tribe could offer this colorful coat or whatever kind of coat it was, who is now a man dressed like an Egyptian, unfamiliar to him, yet commanding the respect and with the authority of the Pharaoh speaking on his own behalf, Jacob's. Like he left a boy and now he hasn't seen him for how many years and now he's standing beside him going, I would be as a parent looking at him like, wow, who is this man? Who? How could my son have become Pharaoh's right-hand man, this Egyptian looking man? Or just with pride in the son that he had Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It would be surreal uh, indeed if, if the boy you thought was gone from this world reappeared as a powerful foreigner. It would be a miracle. All right. We covered Joseph's strategic brilliance for Israel. I want to cover Joseph's strategic brilliance for Egypt. And his strategy for them was to meet the needs of the Egyptian people while establishing Pharaoh's government. Totally different than what he was trying to do for Israel. But it was important. This was his job. So let's read where he goes. Verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seeds so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. 
All right, a lot of information there, but just to simplify, Joseph is being strategically brilliant for the good of Egypt and Pharaoh. It sounds a little harsh because he's taking a lot of stuff away from them. And making them slaves, which you would think that having been a slave himself and knowing how miserable it was, he wouldn't do that to others, but I suppose it's his job. So he stopped short of that. They didn't become slaves. He actually has three exchanges for them. He exchanged, the, the first is the exchange of money for food the exchange of cattle for food, and the exchange of land and labor for food. All right, so here's my defense for Joseph's brilliant Mm -hmm. strategy, even though it was rather a harsh policy. To overcome the famine, a strong central government was needed to avoid starvation. And the taxation of one-fifth or 20% at the end of it was fair even by today's standards. The people faced were faced with losing their lives. And you see that they're actually thankful. So at the time, it really didn't feel harsh to them. And it probably wasn't because they were literally starving. And had Joseph not gone ahead of them, uh, they would have right. died. And then it, it was clearly Joseph's policy to be a blessing to all in authority over him, whether it was Potiphar, the prison guard, Pharaoh, his father, Jacob, or God. And he does indeed bless Pharaoh for putting him in charge. So in reading the commentaries and everything, you see, yes, the people needed that government, didn't have it prior, um, but it, it did set Pharaoh up to be very strong. And we'll see that does come back and hurt them a little in the future because the next pharaoh is also very strong. But the Egyptians didn't, it doesn't appear, suffer because they ended up just paying taxes and they must have sooner or later been able to recoup some of the things they lost. Well, and another thing in this whole plan, when before he he took the land, he took the livestock. And like you said, anything that he touched basically turned to gold. So he knew the livestock in his hands were going to fare better than the livestock in the hands of the Egyptians. So there was probably a whole plan for that too because then that can come back and bless the people later with food. Right. At the time that this was done, both Pharaoh and Joseph were wise leaders. And so it was fair. You know, the problem is is when you make rules and then unwise leaders come in and (laughs) it goes awry. But in this case, it was it was good for Egypt. Continuing on in verse 25, you have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as law concerning the land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. 
Okay, so another little side note. It's just a great closure here that Jacob receives the blessing of seeing this beloved son, Joseph, who we just talked about um, before he dies. He also gets to spend 17 years with him, having his entire family growing up around him in peace. It was just a period of growth and peace. And then he also gets God's promise that he would be with them long after Jacob was gone. Well, I also think it's interesting how they go back to calling him Israel in the Mm -hmm. end instead of, I mean, they're calling him both Jacob and Israel, but to start using that name again when it hasn't been used all this time. Mm -hmm. So we close out this section seeing that Joseph was indeed a brilliantly strategic leader. He stayed hopeful throughout his struggle in prison and, and, and finished right where God planned. And that was as a leader in Egypt um, to save his nation. And then he also honored Pharaoh by, um, you know, blessing him with, with um, prosper by prospering. All right. Now I want to talk about Jacob, another guy you should follow if you're looking for inspiration on how to just fight that good fight and find God's plan for you. Jacob was totally different. He was a tenaciously steadfast leader and he learned long and hard ways. Jacob's examples to us is this. Jacob wrestled with his own sin. Remember, Joseph struggled with the sin of others. Jacob was his own worst enemy. He wrestled with his relationships, with his father, his brother, his wives, his sons. He wrestled with God. He chose to wrestle. That was his way of learning. And Jacob had, he was his own worst enemy. And he, but he never gave up. He never gave up and said, I can't learn this. He overcame with tenacity. And now we're going to see he has hit this period in his life where he is just faithfully steadfast. All that wrestling made him an overcomer and he has given up control. He doesn't wrestle anymore. He just trusts God. He checks in with God like he did before going to Egypt and he's he's praying to God, but he's not fighting God anymore. In the next two chapters, he is going to be an, a huge instrument of God. And that's when God really uses us when we give up control. His words are going to define Define the structure and they're going to prophesy the future of this nation. So while Joseph saved the nation by being, by, by, you know, overcoming his trials, Jacob is going to lay out the future of this nation. And it's a, the next two chapters are really fun. Today, we're just going to cover 48. Chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road of Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. All right, so first, the sweet side note. This random thought of Rachel, he's kind of like laying out this thing. He's reiterating the promise, which all the patriarchs do. I was given this promise. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply, blah, blah, blah. He kind of does that thing. And then he explains this 
new thought that I have never read. We have not read anywhere in Genesis. So this was clearly from the Lord, this new thought that he's going to elevate two of his grandsons to the position of son. Well, weren't these grandsons also not fully um, Israelites because they're half Egypt? Yeah, he had married that princess or whatever you call her. So he's grafting them in. Right. And he's doing this while he's alive. Very smart. So there will be no quarreling with the brothers after he's gone. Not that they would, because I think they've, Joseph is going to be the current leader of them. And they all know that. But he then has this sweet aside about like, it's almost like his mind just kind of wanders off. Rachel died in the land of Canaan while I was on the way to Ephraim. I had to bury her there. In other words, I had to bury her there instead of where I'm going to be buried because I'm going to be buried with my father, Isaac. And and so it's like, it doesn't make sense here, but it reveals another motive probably in his heart about why he's glad for this double portion for Joseph. Jacob wants to pay honor to the love he still longs for his wife, Rachel, the one who couldn't have children and then only had two compared to everybody else, compared to her sister who had, four, you know, how many? I don't know. More than a lot. Um, and the one who would not be buried with him because he had to bury her along the road. So, you know, he has this special place in his heart for Rachel. And yet she's she's not the one that is going to get the promised seed of Jesus. She's not the one that gets buried with him. And yet in his heart, she is first place. And so you can tell he's kind of happy in this little aside that she is now going to have a great, a slightly greater portion because one of her sons is going to get a double. And you would think that he had already kind of filled Joseph in on what happened with his mom over the years while he didn't know what was going on, right? I think he's daydreaming here. I, not daydreaming. I think or his mind's wandering a little. Yeah, at the end of his life. Like but about why this feels good to him. Do you think it's also significant that she's, okay, so he's lamenting. She's not going to be buried with him back mm-hmm. in the promised land, but she's buried in Bethlehem where oh, no, Jesus she's, she's is going the, to be born. Yeah, she's in the promised land. She's just not with him. And that was a big deal back then. Oh, okay. So it's still the Bethlehem is in the promised land. Yeah. Oh. But it just wasn't in that grave that had been purchased for them. Oh. So, um, all right. So God uses Jacob to structure the nation of Israel. I want to kind of break this down because this is this is where you see this. What we just read is part one of whatever kind of epiphany God gave to Jacob about how to lay out this this nation. Like he's going to lay down this structure. And in this blessing and, and next week's blessing, he is going to kind of prophesy what's going to become of these tribes. So previously, the patriarchs gave their chosen replacement both the birthright and the blessing. We know all about this because the birth, we studied it. The birthright included, and I'm going to further define this, the responsibility to lead spiritually, which would become known as the priesthood, the responsibility to govern wisely or evolves into the kingship, and the double inheritance to provide financially for the welfare and growth of the family slash, slash nation. Is that clear? That's the birthright. And that's what Jacob had stolen from Esau. Correct. He, he actually stole both the birthright and the blessing. Yeah, later. Now, Jacob is going to change it up and divide it up between his sons. The spiritual... Now, so I'm telling you what's going to happen in the future so you understand why these tribal blessings are so important and how he's structuring the nation. The spiritual leadership or priesthood is going to, in the future, go to Levi. It's not going to stay with the same person. The authority to govern or the kingship is going to go to Judah, the tribe of Judah. And today we 
read that the double inheritance is going to Joseph. Joseph will have twice the land of his brothers through his sons. Joseph's sons will be equal to their uncles. It also means that his beloved wife, Rachel, will be the mother to three tribes of Israel, Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Personally, side note, I do think it's kind of sad that Joseph's name disappears from the list. He was so great. I think it's great that he gets a double portion. I think it's sad that he doesn't go down as a tribe. There's no Josephites. No, there's no Josephites. (laughs) And he was such a great leader. So, okay. So that's how we're the first part of the structure we're setting up and where it's going and why I want you to understand how this new division of the birthright is kind of super important to the tribes. Verse eight, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Okay, I think this is cute. Again, another character aside, the little personalities. Are you having deja vu? Because of course you should be. Jacob has inherited his father Isaac's failing eyes. And we're in the exact same place we were with Jacob and Esau. The tale of two sons continues. However, Joseph has not inherited Jacob's family and the family trait for trickery. He's not going to try to trick his father. But I think it is a kind of a cute, sweet deja vu moment. Yeah. And that's why sometimes I have a hard time and I mix all these people up because <laughs> they definitely repeat history over yeah. and over yeah. and over. But he broke, <laughs> he broke the generational curse of trickery. Yes. Way to go. All right. Verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. All right. So in case you have a hard time picturing what's going on here, because it really was such an, it must have been a fascinating, intense moment, is that Joseph is bowed down on the ground. And it said, then he blessed Joseph because he really is blessing Joseph. And I think that's why Joseph chooses to bow down with his face to the ground. But Joseph has positioned his sons in front of him and in front of his father in between them. And he has positioned his oldest so that his oldest would be on Jacob's right hand because the right hand is the hand of the blessing. (laughs) And he has positioned his younger on the left. But what Joseph sees his father do, even though he has positioned them correctly, is cross his arms. And the interesting thing that has to be going through Jacob's head is I, Isaac, blessed the wrong person, not knowing what he was doing. I, Jacob, am blessing the younger son, knowing what I'm doing. So it's kind of a crazy, intense moment. And then we're going to see what Joseph does next. Verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. 
Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. All right, let's talk about the switch for the second son. This is one we, we, we've we talked about before. Um, it's the passing over of the older son to give a younger the blessing, and it's become a pattern in Genesis. There are many generations in the list where the oldest did receive the birthright and the blessing. However, the passing over of the firstborn for another of God's choice is central to many of our stories. Why? Why? Seth was chosen over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, and Jacob over over Esau. And now we have Ephraim over Manasseh. This is so important to us. It is God's unique way of reminding us that God sees the heart and he's going to choose the heart first every single time. Yeah. And you asked why. And in each of those four that you pointed out situations, it was sin. That was why. Exactly. God knows the heart and he knows what's going to happen. And in his sovereignty, he has chosen to use and bestow his blessing on those who love him, whether they are first or not. If you have ever bought fabric or anything wholesale for that matter, you know there is this merchandise called seconds and they're pieces that have some flaw in them, usually still serviceable, just they're just not perfect. Basically think TJ Maxx. Yeah. I think God loves the seconds. People who are not perfect, but flawed. People humbled by circumstances, relying on God, conscious that it is his grace that sustains them. People who have a heart for God. And I want to be a second. I want to want to be a second, but I kind of want to be first. That's because you're a perfect. You got to get past that. You can't be a perfect. None of us are. (laughs) Ephraim is the second son. The secret to what God sees in Ephraim's heart will not be revealed for over 400 years, but it was passed down because over 400 years later, Ephraim's line will produce a man, a leader so worthy that he will get his own book in the Bible. When Moses passes the torch to him with the challenge to lead the Israelites into the promised land, Joshua is the hero of book number six on the Bible book club reading list, and he He is from the line of Ephraim. Can't wait till we get there. I know, right? Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I give one more ridge of land than your brothers. The ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. And it's my understanding that is Shechem, which was kind of an interesting place. But I think Jacob just wanted to give him another little prize. Let me recap. Jacob, who he was and who he has become. In the beginning, Jacob was manipulative and self-reliant. He had inherited his mother's way of getting what he wants, stealing the birthright and the blessing from Esau. 
something God was going to give him anyway, had he only trusted. He paid for it with 20 years service under Laban. But although his methods were wrong, his motive was right. He had a passion and desire for God's blessing and purposes for their family. In the end, Jacob was faithful and God-reliant. He had inherited his father's intense affection for God and his family. He listened for God and even wrestled with God until he was transformed into a man of God, trusting and patient. In the end, this patriarch, who was disciplined for years, applied that discipline to God's purpose to create a nation. Jacob is the ultimate example to us of how God molds us according to his design for his purpose. If you have ever doubted that God could use you, the stories of Jacob and Joseph are for you. Jacob, the man who struggled with his own sin and overcame it, or Joseph, the man who struggled with the sin of others and overcame it. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this to you. It's God's promise that you can be like Jacob and Joseph. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He did it for Joseph, he did it for Jacob, and he can do it for you. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.